chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And uh, if you can please stand for the reading of God's word. It says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those uh, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I should have been prepared. See, when I go to the gym, I always bring two bottles of water, and I always open the second one so I don't have to open it in the middle of, of doing all these things. But I didn't think of that today. And our clock back there doesn't work, so I'm going to just preach until I'm done. Oh, no, now they say it works. Oh, yeah, it works. Shoot. Now I'm going to have... <laughs> All right, well, today we're going to take a break from our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Kyle was leading our worship today with Jesse and Mandy, which is very good. They should do that more often. But that means you get to hear me preach instead of Kyle, so... The payoff isn't as good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> So, uh, like I said, we're going to take a break from Nehemiah, and we're going to look at um, the subject of prayer. One of our goals as a church this year was that um, we would be a praying church, but not just that, but that, um, that we would pray every day, that our members would pray on a daily basis. And so I just wanted to look at that. And so we gave... Um, out uh, journals, prayer journals, at our annual meeting. That was the gift that we gave to everyone. And inside of the prayer journal was a little bookmark. And inside the and on the bookmark has the text of the Lord's Prayer, as a couple of as well as a few verses before it. So um, I thought that's what we would look at today. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is a great way to um, pray daily. And so I just wanted to uh, expound upon that today. And now, if you didn't get a journal, we have actual ones. Uh, at the at the welcome center, so after service, come see us, and we'll get you a journal, and you can have that, and you can join us in, in prayer. And the reason for the journal is it's just uh, good to tr- track your prayer requests and write them down, and uh, then the prayer requests you take for other people, and it just helps you pray more and just be more accountable to God and to yourself, and and then you see the answers to prayer too, and it just encourages you, because a lot of times when we pray, we don't always God doesn't always answer us right away, or we think he doesn't answer us right away. Or when God says no or wait, we say, oh, God isn't answering me. Well, God is answering us. He just said no. <laughs> it's just not the answer that we want. But there are plenty of times that God says yes, and God answers. he always answers our prayers. And we have a record of that. That will just encourage you during those times that you feel like that he's not. So we have those journals available for you. And um, so, yeah, come and get one if you don't have one. Our text for today is... Matthew 6, 9 to 13. I chose the King James translation um, because of the, uh, the inclusion of the doxology at the end, and you'll see why we'll talk more about that as we get there. 
Um, but so some of the times I feel as a, as a modern-day preacher, our job is to explain the King James translation because of the English that it's written in. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the whole thing as a whole and just take it apart. Now, the common name for our thing today for the prayer is known as the Lord's Prayer. That, um, but many people have comment, commented that the Lord's Prayer is really not an accurate description of this prayer because Jesus doesn't pray this prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples rather than the prayer that Jesus prayed himself. And the big issue people have with this being called the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus never has to pray for forgiveness. He doesn't have to ask God to forgive his sins because Jesus doesn't have any sins. So they, people point out that it's not the Lord's Prayer because he isn't praying it. And that is technically correct, but it's just tradition has said that it's called the Lord's Prayer because he's the one that gave it. So many people want to call it the Disciples' Prayer. Now that is more accurate because it's the disciples who asked for the prayer, or it's in response to their question in, in the Gospel of Luke, and it is a prayer that the disciples pray. This is a, a prayer for the disciples to pray, for believers to pray. It's not a prayer for unbelievers to pray. It's not a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer of fellowship, and it's a prayer... So it is a prayer for the disciples. So that is, a, is an acceptable name. Uh, most of us know it as the Our Father. Most of us grew up in this area and um, have probably recited this a hundred million times, <laughs> which is, leads to one of the issues that we'll talk about later as well. Um, I, I think Our Father is a, is a very good title for this prayer. And I actually like the Latin translation. The Latin translation is Pater Noster. And if we call it Pater Noster, we're still saying Our Father. But what it does for me, at least, it takes all the negative connotations I have in my mind of the Our Father away. Because, again, I grew up Catholic, and I grew up saying this prayer all the time, but I never really knew its meaning. There's a lot of reasons why I left the Catholic Church. Um, and so when I, say, when I hear the words Our Father, I'm all like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> it just makes me have negative connotations of my upbringing. And it really shouldn't. It, you know, this is scripture. We really shouldn't be um, disregarding this just because of the way other churches have used it. Um, so when, for me, when we call it Pater Noster, um, it takes all that away because I'm still trying to figure out what the heck does Pater Noster mean. <laughs> but it simply means our Father. And so that's the name that I kind of will be throwing around today. Um, now, this prayer, the Pater Noster, is, oh, I went too far. Hold on. It's a model prayer and a corporate prayer. And this is what we're going to talk about. This is going to be our outline. We're going to look at it, how, it's, how is it a model, and then is it a corporate prayer? Um, many people don't think it should be a corporate prayer. Um, now, in the Catholic Church, they use it as a corporate prayer every week. It's a part of their Mass. The Protestants have rejected that, have reacted to that, mainly because um, they don't feel that when it's being recited that people are paying attention to it. And, that's, and that can be true. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be a corporate prayer. And we'll look at, at the second half of the message, we're going to look at why it should be a corporate prayer. But first, I just wanted to look at it as a model prayer. And so as a model prayer, it provides an outline for us on how to pray. It gives us topics that we should pray for. Um, like I said, 
many people don't think that it should be recited word for word, um, but, but I think it should, and we'll, again, we'll talk about that after. But as a model of prayer, one writer said this, the Lord's Prayer is a one unified, compact model prayer consisting of seven petitions and a doxology divisible into two parts, the first Godward and the second usward. And so the idea is, these are themes, themes that we can pray in our prayers. And so we're going to just take these apart and look at them. So the Godward section is, has three facets to it. Thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will. And so we'll just dive into these. So first, thy name. All right, so Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. The point is that God's name is holy. The word hallowed or holy, it means set apart, something special. God's name is consecrated. It was considered so holy to the Jewish people that they would never say God's name. Jewish tradition did not allow them to speak God's personal name. God's personal name is Yahweh. And when he appeared to Moses in, in the burning bush, uh, God was sending Moses back to Israel. And Moses is like, who should I say sent me? And uh, modern translations say, say, I am. I am that I am. And the translation there is Yahweh. And this is where God's personal name comes from. However, the Jewish people felt that Yahweh was so holy that they would never speak it. And so they actually... Um, would say the word Lord. And even in their written uh, documents, when they came to the word Yahweh, they would say Lord. And this is actually has led to a lot of confusion, um, which is a rabbit trail I won't trace. But um, in your Old Testaments, in our modern translations, uh, you'll see Lord in all caps. And when you see Lord in all caps, that's the word Yahweh. And that really should read Yahweh said this, so Yahweh said that, not Lord. But the English translators felt that the name Yahweh was just too strange and weird to people. And so they continued to use the, the Jewish tradition of the word Lord. Um, so that's how holy God's name is. And so when Jesus is saying to, to his, his audience that God's name is holy, they totally understood that. They totally got that. Almost to, you know, again, to a point where they went too far. And for God's name to be holy, it means that he is special because your name represents who you are. It's not just the address and how we call you. It's, it represents your person and your personality. Just like, you know, if you're at work, you know, I work overnights with people and um, if someone during the second shift said, oh, Morgan does that, well, they know that brings up a whole idea of who I am, not just that person overnight, hopefully. <laughs> And it's the same idea. God's name brings up who he is, and he is holy, and he is set apart. But what's interesting, too, that Jesus never mentions his name in this prayer. He says, hallowed be thy name, holy be your name, but he never uses his name. Instead, he tells us to address God as our Father. And this is because he is our Father. He's not just a person to us. He's not, he is our friend in other texts. He's our king. But he's not just offering our king. He is our father. And that has a lot of significance to it because it reveals the intimate relationship that we have with God. Um, 
you know, my children know my name, but they're not going to call me by that. They're going to call me dad, unless they're really mad at their father or whatever, you know. But they, they're not going to call me Morgan. Just like, remember the Brady Bunch? The, the, now I'm dating ourselves, but the episode when uh, Greg decided to call Mike and um, Carol by Mike and Carol instead of mom and dad. No. <laughs> so anyways, and we were just watching, and it was a big, that was the big joke of the episode. Like how dare a son would refer to their parents by their name. You call them father, mother, father. And this is how we're supposed to address God. Um, one author writes, we recognize then that as God's special possessions and God that we are God's special possessions and God is ours. We are his children and not just his creatures. All creatures possess God as their beginning and end, but we possess him as children of the king, children who live in the palace and are heirs to the throne. So when we say our father, this brings up this whole idea of, of relationship and that we belong to him. And not just we belong to him, but he belongs to us. Now, there is a sense that God has created everyone. And I remember um, we were watching President Trump's State of the Union, and he, at the end, he made a mention that the same God created all of us. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. And that's actually true, because we believe that God created everyone. However, he is not the father of everyone. The fatherhood of, of man is not the same as the fatherhood of God, of, or as God the Father. And when you become a Christian, you become a child of God. So everyone is a creature of God, but not everyone is a child of God. And when you're a child of God, that comes along with all the things that belonging to the king belongs to. And, and again, God is not just a God. He is the king of the universe, and we have this special privilege as his children. Just like we all know, or at least have the concept of people that are rich and they're, how their children get away with things because their parents are who their parents are. Well, you know, it's kind of the same way for us. Our father is God, the creator of the universe. <laughs> that gives us a little bit more liberty. Not liberty to do what we want, but liberty to do what he wants and the power to do it. You know, some people get to go on lavish vacations or all the things they want to do because their parents bankroll them. Well, you know, our Father bankrolls us to do his will. And that's all these things come into mind when we address God as our Father. Many of us have the, the picture of God as Father, as a loving person who provides for us and protects us. And these are all valid pictures of who God is and who a Father is. But interesting enough, um, this is not the picture that Jesus had in mind or the picture that Jesus' audience would have thought of right away when Jesus says to pray to God as our Father. Uh, one writer, N.T. Wright, points this out. It says, The first occurrence in the Hebrew Bible of the idea of God as the Father comes when Moses marches in boldly to stand before Pharaoh. And he says, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go, that they may serve me. For, so for Israel to call God Father then was to hold on to the hope of liberty. So for Israel, their idea of God as a father really wasn't the idea that we have. Our idea of God as Father is, is a theologically correct idea, and it comes from the later revelation in the New Testament. But for Israel at that time, their idea of God as a father is someone that liberates them from bondage. Their father, Israel as a child of God, uh, you know, the father of Israel, um, he delivered them from Egypt. 
And with a strong arm, he brought them out of Egypt. And so the idea that they would have is of someone who liberates them. And this is the idea that Jesus wanted to communicate there, I believe. And um, because this is what God does for us. When we become children of God, he breaks the bondage of sin for us. He liberates us from sin and from bondage. And we can now live in freedom. And so when we say our father, we should really have three things in mind. He provides for us. He protects us, and he liberates us. And this is all tied up with thy name. And he does this by making us a part of his kingdom. Since we are members of the kingdom, we now have protection, and we now have provisions, and we have been liberated from the bondage of sin because we're a part of his kingdom. Which leads us to our second point, thy kingdom. Now, we live in a country where the idea of a kingdom is kind of odd. We live in a nation that's, that's ruled by the people and for the people, supposedly. <laughs> but we don't have a government of a king. We don't have a monarchy. We just don't, you know, it just doesn't work that way for us. So it's a little odd for us to think about a kingdom. However, in Israel's time, it was the opposite. They would have no idea of democracy or all the people getting together and say, hey, let's do this, even though the king doesn't want us to. Like, that would never happen. So their idea of kingdom is really of a nation that would rule, be ruled by God. Um, one author points out the word kingdom has a concrete historical meaning for the people of Israel. Indeed, the 12 tribes of Israel considered themselves collectively to be the kingdom of God. So when we say thy kingdom come, we are talking about a rule of God to come, um, not a, a, a democracy. We're talking about a monarchy where the king gets to decide whatever happens, for good or for bad. <laughs> he is the king. He gets to do what he wants. The awesome thing is we're his children, so that means we get to do what we want, kind of. <laughs> but there are two things to consider when we talk about the kingdom. Theologically, there is what is called the universal kingdom, but then there's also what is called the Davidic kingdom. Now, the universal kingdom is the fact that God is in control of everything. God is over time and space. He is over heaven and earth. Everything is under God's control, and he is the sovereign king ruling everything. And so when we refer to the kingdom, it's all, that part of the kingdom is already happening. When we say thy kingdom come, there's actually something, we're actually praying more for the Davidic kingdom to come. Because the universal kingdom is already here. The, the universal kingdom is the fact that God is in control of everything. God, his throne room is in heaven, but his reign is over everything. Um, it used, they used to say that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And because the British Empire had colonies all over the world. And so no matter where you were in the world, there was some part of the British Empire where the sun was, was shining. Well, the same could be said of the universal kingdom of God. The sun never sets on the universal kingdom. In fact, God created the sun. <laughs> so we're not praying for the universal kingdom. The universal kingdom is already here. What this is a prayer for is a prayer for the Davidic kingdom. Now, the Davidic kingdom is the promise that the nation of Israel will be the rulers of the, of the world that they will be the kings of the world. They lived in, in a time where Rome ruled the world. The emperor of Rome controlled everything. And, but Israel had been promised years, you know, thousands of years previous to this that they would be the ones ruling the world and that someone from the family line of David would be the king. 
And this is a promise that was given to Israel that has not literally been fulfilled yet. Israel has never ruled the entire world. Um, however, we believe they will in the future. And this is why we believe, um, this is a whole other discussion, where we believe Jesus Christ is going to come back and reign from Israel as the king of the world in fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. And so when we pray for the, David the kingdom coming, we're really praying for the Davidic kingdom. Um, I'm not sure if I have this quote up here. All right, that's not it. Okay. So one author points this out. The kingdom of God refers rather to a specific historical reality, the reign that God established by covenant with David, and which he renewed by Jesus Christ. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Um, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking for an ever-increasing manifestation of the glory of Jesus' real presence. Remember, Jesus' message all the time was, the kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is this. And he, the kingdom is, I believe the kingdom is the main theme of the Bible. And everything is building up to the fact that God's kingdom is going to come and reign on earth. And that is the Davidic kingdom. Again, it was promised to David. It is Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom because he is the person who is going to reign as the Davidic king. One of the main points of Jesus being the Messiah is the fact that he is in the line of David. If you remember the birth narratives, the point of the birth narratives is to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is from the, a descendant of David. And the amazing thing about that is nobody ever said to Jesus, you're not qualified to be the Messiah. There are lots of, there are, not a lot, but there are a few very concrete things that the Messiah had to have, you know, that a person had to fulfill to be the Messiah. And one of them is that you had to be a relative of David. You had to be from the line of David because you're going to be the one ruling as the Davidic king. No one ever said to Jesus, oh, you know, you're not from the line of David, you're disqualified. No one ever questioned that because he was clearly from the line of David. There are some other things about that um, qualifications to be the Messiah that the Messiah would have. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. The, again, the amazing thing about the, Jesus as Messiah, those who rejected him rejected him because they didn't like the kind of Messiah he was being. They didn't like the idea of him becoming king and taking their power away. But they never said, you're not qualified to be Messiah. Just like, you know, in our political elections, one of the big things... Um, in the previous presidency was about his birth. Was he born in America or not born in America? Because if you could prove he wasn't born in America, then he's not qualified to be president, regardless of how good he is. And that was one of the, the attacks. And that we even saw that they said the same thing about Ted Cruz, because he was born in Canada. And that brings up a lot of issues. But no one ever said that about Jesus. Jesus is very clearly meets all the requirements of, of the kingdom. because And he is the king, and this is why he's telling us to pray for thy kingdom come. And the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come to us in the past, in the incarnation, that is in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was here on the earth, he is the fulfillment of the kingdom. It comes to us right now in the present in the church. The church, us today gathered together, we are the manifestation of the kingdom. We are God's kingdom on earth. And it's going to come in the future in the fullness when Jesus Christ returns. 
When Jesus Christ returns, we believe there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ as king from Jerusalem. And, that, and the, the Davidic promise will finally be fulfilled. And so this is what God's kingdom is. And when God's kingdom is fully present, then his will will be done. And that leads us to our next point, thy will. I, I wanted to put my will because I like that better. <laughs> and really, that's kind of like what the, is the idea of going on here. Jesus teaches us to pray, Lie, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's interesting because in heaven, God's will is done perfectly. There's no, like, debating it. You know, oh, should I? What is God's will? You know, one of our biggest questions is always, what is God's will? And that's a good question for us to ask. A lot of times, God's will has already been revealed, and it's just, we don't want to do it. <laughs> and it's like, so really, we're not saying, oh, what is God's will? We're really kind of just saying, I want my will. <laughs> And, but when we pray, thy will be done, we're actually asking for us to have a greater understanding of, of doing God's will. Um, one author writes this in regards to God's will. We may choose to accept his will and do his will, or we may choose to resist. Our resistance, however, brings for us its own pains. For the will of God is inexorable. It's going to be accomplished no matter how much we push back against it. So this goes back to the universal kingdom. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and his will is always going to be done. We, however, as free will agents, can choose to fight against it, to resist it. In this part of the prayer, when we're saying, thy will be done, we're really asking that our will lines up with God's will. And a part of prayer really is, for us to get God's will and accept it. And prayer isn't for us to change God's mind. Prayer is for our mind to be changed into God's will. Um, so our prayer is to condition us to say thy will instead of my will. And this is something we have to do a lot. And, you know, we actually see Jesus doing this on the night of his crucifixion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is saying, you know, is there another way to do this, God? Okay, I know I'm going to be beaten, crucified, and... You know, that really doesn't sound too appealing. <laughs> Is there another way we can do this? And, but Jesus says, but nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. You know, if Jesus had to pray that, how much more do we have to pray that? And that's really what is the idea here. And it's just something we, need, we really need to pray it daily because our own selfish nature is always going to exalt our will. And that's why we always... You know, and that's why it's good for us to say, what is God's will? But his will will be done in that universal part. But he also gives us free will, and so we want it ours to match. All right, so at this point, the Peter Noster changes focus, and it's going to focus on us. And it's funny, there are, there's four us things, and we're going to look through each one of them. Um, the first one is give us. And... You know, I just thought it kind of funny. The first part, the Godwood part, only had three. But the, the us part has four. <laughs> and just, again, again, we focus on ourselves more than anything. But this is the prayer Jesus gave us. So that's not, it's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to pray for yourself. I think we need to remember that too. Like, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's not wrong to tell God anything. Sometimes, like, you might be mad at someone, or you might have a desire that you just know isn't godly, and you're like, oh, I don't want to pray that. Well, you know, first, 
pray it because God already knows <laughs> anyways. God knows exactly what you're thinking and what you're saying and what you want. So I am under the impression we should pray and tell God everything. And because when you do, it'll just help transform your mind more into God's mind. And then I just decided I'm going to be hyper-spiritual, and there's three of the Godward signs because of the Trinity, so. <laughs> I just thought, I see, I should never go off note because that's one of those. That's a lesson to learn from our president. Don't go off topic or you just go... <laughs> All right, so give us. Part of me just wanted to stop right there and just say, this is so much of our prayer is give us. Give me this, give me that. You know, and again, it's not wrong for us to pray and ask for things, um, but it shouldn't be our focus. But here Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And this is a request for whatever we need to live. In the ancient world, bread was necessary for life, and it wasn't always easy to get. And so they're praying for their daily food. They're praying for what they needed to live for that day. Um, and notice it's daily. And we pray for this day our daily bread. This reveals that we should be praying daily. We should be asking God for what we need to live every day. Not, um, you know, what we need a year from now. My prayer is always, hey, I want to win the lottery, God. <laughs> and, um, I think I could pray that every day, and it still wouldn't be. And still, the answer would still be no. And part of the reason is because it would make me less dependent on God. God wants us to, to be dependent on him. It's kind of funny because we, especially in America, we pride independence, and we want to live independent lives. But in Christianity, God wants us to live dependent lives, dependent on him. Now, we should be independent in that we are dependent upon God ourselves and not through other people. Um, and so, and one of the ways we do that is through praying daily. Now, many commentators point out that this is also a request for communion with God since Jesus declared that he is the bread of life in John 6.35. Um, one writer, he wrote this, he said, For all the early Christian commentators, our bread meant not only their everyday material needs, but also their need for communion with God. And I think this is a good point. I think it's theologically true that we need communion with God every day. We need to go to God every day to get that communion with God. Um, I'm not exactly sure that that's what Jesus had in mind when he said this. Um, being a literalist, I, that's not what it means. You know, literally, the text says, give us this day our daily bread. It, it just means our food, what we need for today. But theologically, it is also correct. And Jesus did say, I am the bread of life. So it's not much of a stretch to, to go there. Um, it's just I don't exactly think that that's exactly what is being communicated in this text as, as a normal reading. But it doesn't make it less true. You know, as a, when we interpret the Bible literally, that just means like we interpret normally that it just means what it says without putting spiritual meanings to it or allegorical meanings to it so when we say this is referring to jesus as the bread of life that's more of an allegorical interpretation um which i i don't lean towards however the theology is correct and so if the theology is correct then the interpretation is something that we can still apply and so i do believe we should be praying for our communion with god every day um god is the one um uh, Jesus is going to feed our souls. Just like we need 
uh, normal food to feed our bodies. We need the Word of God to feed our souls, and we need to do it every day. And through prayer is how we're going to get it, and through the study of the Word. This is how, this is what we should be doing on a daily basis. But the, the main point of this is basically that the point seems to be that the disciple prays for immediate day-to-day necessities rather than for long-term luxuries. It's, a, it's funny, this verse, give us this day our daily bread, in the Greek is actually uh, very hard to translate. It's a, it's a kind of a, a mess, and what it means is very, people debate exactly what it means. This is really the best translation, though, of what it means. And one of the reasons is because some of the words used in it are only used here in the New Testament, and they're not even used in ancient Greek literature. So it's very hard for us to figure out what some of these words mean. So, but the idea is this is what we have at the bottom, that we're to pray for our day-to-day necessities, not so much our long-term plans. Because, you know, the bottom line is we don't know what our long-term plans are. God, you know, is in control of those, and they could change at any time. But we know day-to-day, and we should, that's what we should be praying for. And throughout biblical history, this is how God has provided for his people. When they were in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided manna, food for them every day. And they had to go out every day to get the manna. And they could only do it once a day in the morning. And they could only get enough food for that day. And then they had to go out and get it the next day. If they collected too much food, whatever was extra would, would, was rotted. And they, weren't, and they couldn't use it. So they were forced to go out every day. And the only exception to that was on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, they weren't allowed to collect anything. They're not allowed to work. So the day before the Sabbath, they had to collect two days' worth of food. And if they only collected one day worth of food and they went out to get food on the Sabbath, it wasn't there. So that's a mistake you only made once. <laughs> and there wasn't any, and you couldn't get some from anybody else because anyone, everyone else could only take enough for themselves. And if they did take more, it wasn't any good because it would rot. So God designed this whole thing that you had to go daily to him. And that's the point of this request, that we go daily to our God for our, for our needs and our request. And all of this is possible because of forgiveness. And, it is, and it's dependent upon forgiveness. And that's our next point, forgive us. This should be like a prayer we pray all the time. Many people, when you... Um, study like how to pray and you go outside of the our father this is many people say we should begin with confession because confession is what makes us right with god and we always are falling outside of we we make mistakes and so it's easy to see why we need to confess them so here the text is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors now this is where we got to kind of change the king james translation (laughs) This isn't talking about financial debts, even though the word, um, the word does mean debts. This word was a metaphor for sin. And in Luke's translation, there is a parallel text in Luke of the Our Father prayer, and he uses the word sins. So in Luke's translation, it's forgive us our sins instead of forgive us our debts. And that really is the meaning that Jesus had in mind, even though Matthew is using the word debts, because this word debts was a metaphor for sin. And so what we're asking God is to forgive us our sins, but it's, there's a dependent clause as we forgive the sins of others. And so something we have to keep in mind here is that this is not a salvation prayer. As I said in the beginning, this is a prayer for believers. 
And so what is being spoken of here and the forgiveness that is being talked about is our, our fellowship with God, our relationship with God after salvation. Because before salvation, the only prayer to God is, you know, save me, I'm a sinner. Like, and, and that's the only thing that is the only prayer that, is, is, that works, you know, until you're saved. But once you're in a relationship with Christ, that relationship changes. And when we sin, that fellowship is broken. And the text here is saying that God isn't going to forgive us if we don't forgive other people. And that's kind of like a very odd thing to us. And, and later on, it's not in our text for today, but the very verse right after it even expands this even more. And the reason for it, the basic reason is this. If you don't forgive somebody, well, then you're in sin and you're out of fellowship with God. So unforgiveness is a sin, and therefore God can't bless you because you're not in relationship, you're not in fellowship with him. So the basic theological concept is, you know, to the answer, why can't God forgive us? Why does God's forgiveness depend on our forgiveness of others? Is because, well, you're in sin if you're not forgiving. For, and I was just thinking about forgiveness and the whole thing. Um, forgiveness is like a key Christian concept. It is one of the things that makes Christianity different from all other religions. And we're called to forgive others because God has forgiven us. And... Um, and, you know, and in Romans, it said that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We were still his enemy, and he died for us. And forgiveness is seen throughout the Gospels. Previous to this, Jesus said, um, instructed them about prayer, and he said, if you go to the temple and you realize that you have offended somebody, stop what you're doing and go apologize to the person that you're offended. Here, this is talking more about the people that when we are offended. And so when we are offended... Um, our, our job uh, is to forgive them. Now, forgiveness takes on many forms, and, and, but at the root of it all, it is a problem of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. And when we forgive somebody, it begins in our heart. And sometimes it can stop there because sometimes people offend us and they don't even know that they offend us. And we don't have to go up to somebody and be like, hey, I want you to know I forgive you. <laughs> you know, you offended me when you stepped on my foot the other day. Or... People probably get offended with, like, a lot of the tie-dye clothes I wear and stuff, you know. So you can forgive me without telling me, hey, I don't like your shirt, you know. <laughs> um, so, but the idea of forgiveness is it's a matter of the heart. And again, because if it's just words and you're just like, hey, I forgive you, but man, that shirt is just, I hate that shirt, you know. Then you really didn't forgive me. <laughs> um, so forgiveness is a matter of the heart. It's an issue between you and God. And our fellowship with God is dependent upon how we forgive other people. Now, there is times where we should confront and we should move on. And really, though, the confrontation should come when we are the person who offended somebody else. Because when we know we offended somebody else, we should go to them and apologize and ask for their forgiveness. And whether they forgive us or not is dependent on them, not on us. All right. Uh, one author says this, you know, I'm sure you've heard this quote. Um, to error is human, that is certainly true, but to forgive is divine. When we forgive, we act as God acts. We forgive others as we have been forgiven first. And you think of, you know, Easter's coming, Good Friday is, is almost upon us, and the seven cries from the cross, and one of the major ones is Jesus, God forgive them, they know not what they do. So here's Jesus being crucified, uh, like unjustly, going through all this stuff, and his 
thought on his mind is, hey, forgive them. That's not my thought. <laughs> so this is why we're called to forgive people. Um, many people, and even in the Gospels, we have the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Everyone knows it, and it, even, it is a biblical concept. But the New Testament letters takes that even further and says, do unto others as Christ has done for you. And Christ died for us, unconditionally forgave us. And this is what we're to do for others. This leads us to our next request. And again, the reason why it's a request, because it's not easy to do. <laughs> we have to pray for it. And this is why you have to do it daily, too, because it's not easy. Then the next one, lead us. Now, part of this, I would just like to leave it right there, and we always need to pray for God's leading. Jesus is going to be specific what we should pray for in regards to leading, but we can make it more general, too. We always need to pray for God's direction and God's leading. That's what we're doing you know, with our building expanse. We prayed about it. We researched a lot of stuff. We prayed as, as elders, and now we come to the church, and we're asking you to pray. And we're not going to take that step if we don't believe that God is leading us. And this is what we're praying for. And this is what we need to do with all of our lives is pray that God leads us. And the funny thing is, God does lead us. The, the prayer really should be like, hey, God, I pray that I follow you. <laughs> and this is kind of like what happens with this text. He says, lead us not into temptation. That's kind of weird to pray because God would never lead us into temptation. The book of James tells us that God doesn't tempt anybody. So it's a little confusing what is going on here. Why would we have to pray that God doesn't lead us in temptation? God wouldn't lead us into temptation. Um, so this has led people to translate this many different ways. Um, now the word temptation in the Bible is very close to the word trials. So trial or, or testing. Many, so God doesn't tempt us, but he does often test us. The testing of our faith builds endurance and it gives us a greater faith. And so sometimes when we're facing a temptation, it might not be a temptation, it might be a testing. And those Greek words are so similar that it's hard to tell the difference in which one it is. And in our lives, it's really hard to tell the difference. Because if you're, um, so for Lent, I gave up uh, desserts. And, and coffee, which was just stupid. So, um, so I have to remodel some of that stuff. But um, so now, but when I want to eat a dessert, now on one level that's a temptation because I'm being tempted to break my vow to eat desserts. But on another level, that's a test because if I don't eat it and I pass the test, that's going to increase my faith. But if I eat it, then I gave in to the temptation. So now, like, so did it come from God or did it come from myself or whatever? And some of it depends on the result. If you gave in and you gave in to the temptation, well, then that wasn't a test from God because God doesn't tempt us. <laughs> but it could still be a test and you just failed. And so it just kind of is really kind of confusing. Other people have said that the word temptation here really should be translated uh, tribulation. Uh, lead us not into tribulation. But, you know, Jesus tells us that we're going to have tribulations in this life, and it's just going to happen. So, um, and then other people said it's a prayer that we don't go through the great tribulation, which is a theological concept of um, right before Jesus comes back, it's going to be a really bad time on earth, and we call it tribulation. Now, we believe that we're not going to go through the tribulation. The church is raptured before that. So that, 
I don't think that's really what we have in mind here. I think the idea here is this is more of like a rhetorical question. It's, uh, um, so they explain it this way. The request, do not lead us into temptation, is not to suggest God causes temptation, but is a rhetorical way to ask for his protection from sin. So, and other people suggest don't, that we should translate it, don't let us yield to temptation. So the idea here is that we're constantly surrounded by temptation, and we need God's enablement to overcome the temptation. And that's what we should be praying for. So it's kind of like when we say lead us not into temptation, the idea that we're asking is for God's power to overcome temptation. And then the final request is for deliverance. We ask God to deliver us. Now, all commentators agree that the Greek translation of this, that the word evil is personified, and that it really should be translated, deliver us from the evil one. So, or another way we would say is deliver us from the devil. So this isn't just a prayer for deliverance from evil in general. It's a prayer for deliverance from Satan. And Satan is our enemy, and he is not looking out for our greater good. And he is real, and he doesn't want us to succeed. First uh, Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this is what Jesus wants us to pray for, protection from the devil. Again, the Greek is very clear. It's not just evil as an idea, it's evil personified. It is the devil, and we should be praying for power over him. So now we reach the part of the Pater Noster, which is the closing, and it's a doxology. Now, a doxology just means a praise to God. And it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this is only in, it's not only in, but in our English Bibles, you're really only going to find this in the King James translation, which was translated and published in 1611, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Most of our modern translations do not include this doxology. And the reason is because the, the manuscripts that we have today, that, which are older and more reliable than the manuscripts that the King James translation used, do not have this verse. They do not have the doxology in it. And so we, translators don't believe that Jesus included this in part of the prayer. However, it's um, kind of odd that Jesus would end this prayer with deliver us from evil. Jewish tradition in prayer always would end with a doxology. So as a formal prayer to pray together as a corporate body, it would be very odd to just end with the petition deliver us from evil. It's kind of almost like if we were instructing people to pray today, we always instruct them to end with, in Jesus' name I pray. It would be like giving someone a prayer but not telling them to pray in the name of Jesus. So while it's, I do agree that it wasn't in the original text, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be a part of the Our Father as a corporate prayer because the theology behind it is certainly correct. And this is really... What, when we come to the New Testament, there are things that um, we don't know if they're in the original or not. And there are debates among scholars if they should be in the text or not. And when we come to those kind of issues, we have to look at the theology. 
And so the theology, the question we have to ask is what that is teaching, what the questionable passage is teaching, is that theology uh, repeated somewhere else? Is it an idea that is consistent with the rest of the New Testament, with the rest of the Bible, that we know is accurate? And the biggest, the biggest or the best example is the, the ending of Mark's gospel. Mark, the ending of Mark 16 uh, has this whole crazy thing in it about uh, playing with snakes. <laughs> and like Indiana Jones, why did it have to be snakes? And the thing, and it says there that, you know, you can handle poisonous snakes and all these crazy things about snakes. And every commentator and every modern Bible has it in brackets. Some of them don't even have it. Maybe it's in the margin. The newer translations won't even have it at all because everyone agrees that that is not in our ancient manuscripts that we have available to us. And so the question that becomes, well, we look at that, is that repeated anywhere else? Nowhere in the Bible is it ever told that we should be playing with snakes and that we should have poisonous snakes. In fact, snakes are the bad guy <laughs> in the Bible. Um, so like that portion of Mark, we really shouldn't go about doing that. But there's a whole, like I have this video, oh, I don't know where it is anymore, but there's this whole down south, the, um, the snake handlers. And this guy was charged with murder because he made his wife handle snakes and she died. Um, and it was all based on that passage. So the question for us today is like, is this a biblical concept? So, okay, we'll agree that it's not in the ancient translation, but is it a biblical concept that we should pray? And my answer is going to say yes, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, um, I think I'm going the wrong way, sorry. This is based on 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11, which is a prayer of David. Um, oh, where is it in my text? Sorry. I'll just read it from here. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are our God, I think it says. But, um, so obviously this is coming back to us. Um, this is a quote from David. So it's a theological concept for us to pray, thy kingdom, thy power, and thy glory. So uh, and this, I believe, gives us evidence of that this is a corporate prayer. The inclusion of the doxology goes back to the time of the apostles. Um, this author writes, the doxology is missing from the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. We find it, however, appended to the Our Father in almost all the ancient lit liturgies dating back to the time of the apostles. We have a work called the Didache, which is a collection of teachings that is from the era of the apostles. We know it was written between 60 and 90 AD. And in that work, when they have the Our Father, they include this doxology. And for the last 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has included the doxology. And so it's always been there. And so the point is, tradition tells us they've always used it. The apostles were alive when this was being used. And so if they believed that it shouldn't be used, they would have objected to its usage. But they never did. And this is why the King James translation ha even has it included, because they were using it as part of their service. 
And so when they prayed the Our Father, they always included the doxology. And so the scribes that translated the King James translation, well, really the manuscripts that they were translating from, they added it in because it was being used. And so, again, technically it probably wasn't in the original, but theologically it, it, should, it, it fits. And that's why um, it was being used. And it just give us, gives us evidence that this is a corporate prayer that we should be praying. The other evidence I, I want to give to you is that everything in this is written in the plural. When the, the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, pray like this, our Father. He didn't say your Father. He said pray our Father. And then all of the requests are us. Deliver us, forgive us, lead us. Not deliver me not forgive me, not lead me, which are all vital prayers, and there's nothing wrong with praying it in the first person, but it is just not how it was delivered, how it was given to us. It was given to us in the plural, and I think that just gives us um, more evidence of the fact that this can be used as a corporate prayer. The reason why we shy away from it today is because of 2,000 years of it being used as a corporate prayer, people would just recite it without thinking about what it means. And a lot of us, as we moved out of the Catholic Church, we moved away from, um, from ritual and, and stuff, but that doesn't mean this isn't a valid prayer for us. Um, I actually think it is a cor can be used corporately if we just pay attention to what's being said. The problem is when you say something or you do something repetitively, you stop thinking about how you did it or how you got there. All of you, raise your hand if you drove here today. Raise your hand if you thought about driving here today. Like, you didn't say, oh, now I'm going to turn left, now I'm going to turn right. Oh, i got to give a little gas, I need a break. And if you were a passenger, you didn't think about getting here at all. You know, we do it every week, and we just don't think about it. And that's what happened with the Lord's Prayer. They... They, it's been done for the last 2,000 years, and people don't think about it. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. It means that we should just pay more attention when we do it. And so what I've done um, is I've just written out the Lord's Prayer and made it into modern language, <laughs> first of all. And I've just corrected the theology of it. Um, and so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to stand and recite this together and... Um, and we'll close with it. And, but I'd like you to you know, uh, actually read it. Because, again, as you start saying it, you're going to just go into rote mode. Because almost all of us have done this. But if you look at the screen and read it, uh, it'll be more meaningful to us. So, Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Uh, thank you. You may be seated. So that concludes our service. No, well, not our service, but our message. And at this time, we're going to...